Thank you. <laughs> I need someone to heckle me, so please, Tom, just, uh, I don't know, give me your best heckling. Good morning. It's great to be with you on this beautiful Sunday. The, the, the sun is, is shining, which it, that's usually what the sun does is it, is it shines, but, but I guess I'm saying there's, there's not any cloud or there's not a marine layer that's keep it, holding it at bay. We're able to just, uh, yeah, just to experience, experience a little bit of that. Um, just kind of a word of, of spiritual housekeeping is the only word that comes to mind of what hit, is hitting my heart throughout the worship today. We're, we're, we all understand that God loves us, yeah? I mean, we hear this, we sing about it, we believe it, it resonates with us. We look at the cross and, and it resonates with us that God's love for us is immense. And uh, yet, I think at times we wrestle or we struggle with, is he pleased with me? Like there is this distinction that we make between he loves me, but I'm not sure he's really pleased with me. And while we were singing today, in fact, it was before we were singing today, I, I, uh, I did Cow's Mountain uh, this morning, and I was just kind of meditating, reflecting on uh, our time here, and I kept hearing it over and over, just this, I, I am, uh, this sense of, I am pleased with this house. I am pleased with this new city house, is what I was, is what I was sensing. And I, when I stepped in here, and we started singing the first song, you know, we were singing, it, it, it talks about how he makes us brave. And uh, his love just comes in wave after wave over us. And as I was sitting in that space, I just could hear that divine rumble of, I am pleased. I am, I'm pleased. I'm pleased. And I think there is within us as family of God, there is that longing to know that he is pleased with us. And I just want to declare that over this house over your life over whatever it is within you that you that in those baptismal waters of the jordan as we stand with christ that is what he says over us this is my beloved i you know i love i love him he brings me great joy with him i am well pleased and in christ we please the father and he is delighted with us um a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, walking up the walking up one of our uh, one of our streets in San Francisco. I was, I was walking up Franklin Street, and I was meeting with a guy that was uh, wanted to talk about getting. He wanted to talk to me about getting baptized, so we're walk, processing through some of that. And um, his uh, his his name is Lord Martin, and um, that's his kind of pseudo name. But uh, he's a designer and ha- had a column with the Chronicle for. San Francisco Chronicle for several years in the 90s, but one thing has led to another, and he he became a, a, a meth addict, and that escalated, and um, and his whole life just fell apart. And so for the past, you know, for the past 20 years, he has just lived as, as lived as a, a addicted to meth, and his life spiraled out of control, and it's just been, and and God began to do a work in his heart and his life, and and he mentioned to me. Um, he works in a, in, a, in a flower shop with my wife, and he mentioned to her, he's like, you know, I would like to get baptized. I would just like to see, you know, what God, I, I really would like to give him my life. So my wife said, hey, come over here and talk to Martine. And so I headed over there to talk with him. I was, I was walking up the street, and I looked over, and on the, on the curb, like laying in, 
like literally laying in the gutter was a guy that it looked like he had he had been walking down the street. Looked like he'd been walking. He had like stepped and and slipped and had fallen and he had hit his head. And uh, so he had a beanie on and his beanie was ma- was just soaked in blood. And his body, the way his body was contorted, I couldn't tell if he was alive or not. I mean, it was just like everything, it, it was not a normal place, normal way to fall. I mean, it looked like, you know, there's some bones that were broken, or it, it, it just looked really bad, and he was completely out of it. And, and I just kind of, I stopped right there, and I, and I, I looked down at him, and I, I turned around to like, you know, what you do, like, you know, who do I call? I'm reaching for my phone, and there's a lady that's standing at the corner, and she's calling uh, 911. And she looks at me, and she says, I, I've got them on the phone, they're on their way. And as soon as she said that, I could hear the sirens you know, coming up the street, and the, the fire truck and the paramedics were, were pulling in. And so he, he was laying, so in, in one of our streets, and I think they probably do that here, like during rush hour, they'll clear the parking from one side of the street so that cars can ride, drive on that side of the street, so you have more traffic. So they had just done that. And so he's, now he's out in the street, and cars are getting ready to come. So I'm standing there like I'm out in the street kind of trying to block you know, just get people to go around, and another guy's come up, and he's he's kneeling down with him and helping him, and then the the fire truck uh, and the and the paramedics they pull up, they jump out, they're working with him and put him in the stretcher, put him on the stretcher, they they take him up, and he's very disoriented, um, you know, just completely out of it, and uh, they they put him on the stretcher, and they're 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 getting ready to put him in, and I'm standing there, and I look at him, <clears throat> and it's like our eyes locked for the eternity of about three seconds. Have you ever had that happen where, you, where it's just like everything seems to stop and you're, it's like you, you're looking deep inside of someone's heart or soul or life and there was this look, there was this look of terror. Like you wake up and you realize I, I'm being put into, a, into the, a paramedic truck, you know, an ambulance. I, I mean, what's going on? It was like that look was in his eyes. He had this look of horror in his eyes, and whatever it was, when as he looked at me, it, it like I felt like it just it came through my eyes, and it just dropped down, and it kind of grabbed me right here, and I and it just it it was stirring me, it was moving me. Turned around, I walked, uh, I walked away, and Mar- by this time, Martine had stepped out, and he's standing there, and um, and so we're talking a little bit, we're getting ready to walk in to go inside of the. Of the, of the flower shop and talk, and as we turn to walk in, he walks ahead of me, everyone's kind of cleared out, and I take a couple steps to walk in, and it just hits me. And I, I start, I, you know, I, I start to cry, I'm, I'm getting all choked up, I get this huge lump in my, in my throat, I'm going, what is going on? You know, I'm like, I feel like the older I get, the more sappy, and the easier I cry, and it's just, what, what is happening, stop! pull yourself together, man. And um, so I'm trying to like, you know, I'm going, I have a meeting and I'm like, oh, I'm trying to hold it back and <clears throat> step in. And um, I didn't have any time to process it because I'm talking with Martine about his, his baptism and so go through that. The next day, trying to process what's going on and it hit me. I felt like what I looked at in that moment <clears throat> was not this gentleman that looked like he was probably in his early 60s that was laying on the, on, that had turned around and was looking at me. I was not looking at, his, at a, to the, in the eyes of a 60-year-old, but I was looking at the eyes 
of a five or six year old in a, in a 60 year old body. It's like I could see the kid, like what has happened with my life? What is going on? Where am I? What am I doing here? How has this happened to me? And I felt like what it connected with was, was seeing the same look in my own son's eyes from time to time when he was a kid and he was trying to overcome his fears, his worries, his concerns that you, know, that you have as a kid as you're trying to, as you're trying to process and, and walk through life. And, and, and Jed, he was, uh, he, he, early on, he, he would have a lot of nightmares as a five and four, five, six-year-old, had a lot of nightmares and uh, was you know, kind of terrified. And, and one of the things that he was always afraid of was he was afraid of heights. One day we had a talk about it. He was like, uh, I'm really scared of heights. And he's like 10 years old. He's telling me, I was like, well, that, you know, that's normal. I mean, we all have fear. We all struggle with fear. So you have, you have, a, fear of, you have a fear of heights. And he kept bringing it up. And so when he was 13 years old, <clears throat> I said to him, hey, how would you like to overcome your fear of heights? <laughs> and he's like, I would, I would love that. I said, here's the thing about overcoming fear. If you learn how to overcome one fear... You can just use that for all the fears that you may face in life. Just once you learn how to, you know, learn how to overcome, then you can take that and, and, and adjust that or, you know, use that, contextualize it to the next fear that you may face. In life. So <clears throat> I said, I'll help you. I said, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we are going to hike Half Dome. <clears throat> and, and he's like, okay. And he has no clue really what it is, like what's going to happen on this hike. He's like, we're just going to go over. He's just thinking, going to overcome fear. So here's this 13-year-old and his <laughs> and his dad. I don't know what his dad was thinking. Whoever that guy was, I've really get, put him through it since then. But anyway, we are, we're, we're going out. So it's like, and it was kind of my whole, this is your becoming a man journey. You are going to enter into the world of men. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right, let's go. So... <laughs> We take off, we drive, and, and um, I couldn't get permits to hike Half Dome, but I was determined I was going to get him to the top of Half Dome, but I couldn't get a permit because the system was how it is, for those of you that have hiked Half Dome. And uh, I was like, but what we'll do is we'll get there. We'll get there before the rangers get there. And we will avoid having to have a permit because we will be there early in the morning and we'll beat the rangers. And he's like, Okay. So, so we wake up like at midnight, and we put all of our gear on. We put, you know, put our have our headlamps on, and we take off on this trek. And you know, it's a, it's a good hike. It's a good solid hike. You go from four thousand feet elevation all the way up to about eighty five hundred feet elevation. I mean, it's a it's a long hike, right? We're going along, you know, kind of wearing out a little bit, and we get to what's called the sub dome. Sub dome. Sub dome is kind of like a little scramble, you know, it's, it's steep, but you're not thinking about it because you got your hands, you're kind of moving up over these rocks and, you know, there's, it, it, you kind of make your way up and so, but you can't see half dome at all because it's, it's, it's blocked by this, by, by, by the sub dome. So you're making your way up, this goes on for a long, you know, for a while. He's exhausted, I'm exhausted. It's about 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. We get up to the, to the sub dome Part, uh, to the top of the subdome, and what happens is when you when you when you crest the subdome, 
then there's this little dip, like a saddle, like a little dip that goes like this, and then there is <laughs> half dome, right? We're doing fine until we get to the crest. We get to the crest. It probably didn't help that somebody was screaming bloody murder from, from the cables. That probably didn't help either. There, there was. There was, a, there was a woman that was screaming at her husband, I will not do this. You're trying to kill me. And he's like, go, go, woman. She's like, I will not. And they're screaming. He's like, Jed looks at me. He's like, oh. So we get there, and I see, I mean, his face just, the color just drains from his face. I mean, we've been hiking for eight, nine hours. I mean, this is not no small, it wasn't like you drive up and you're like, oh, I guess I don't want to do it. It's like, my God, I've been hiking for eight hours and now I have to face this? I'm exhausted. My, leg, my legs are kind of shaken. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm just, so we get there and he, he sits down and uh, sits down on a, on a rock and he puts his head between his knees and I can just see it. It's just like, I, I can't believe this all that way for this. He's sitting there kind of with his head between his knees and um, I think I'd asked him, are you ready? I'd asked him first, do you want to go or do you want to take a breather? And he goes, I want to take a breather. So he's sitting and I realize, you know, he doesn't just want a breather. He doesn't want to hike that and I don't, I, I, don't, I don't blame him, you know? I mean, it's scary. And so we sit there for a little bit and then I said to him, hey, um, would, you've done awesome today. You, you have hiked Half Dome. No one else has to know about this last part. When we go back, we'll tell Mom, we'll tell Drew, we'll tell your friends, you hiked Half Dome. And we don't have to say that we didn't do the cables, but listen, this was, that's quite an accomplishment for a 13-year-old. I mean, you've made it all the way up to this point. That's great, you know? <clears throat> so then I said to him, uh, so tell me, would you, would you, Tonight, when you go to sleep, when you crawl back in that tent and you're going to sleep, what would you have wanted me to say to you in this moment? What do you want me to say to you right now? Think about tonight, going to sleep. What is it that you would have wanted to have done? And how can I help you? Fear... Fear, can, fear gets us so far in life. You can accomplish a lot with fear. Fear can drive you to make some great accomplishments. But faith, faith will take you to accomplish so much more than fear can take you. Fear gets you half the way there, maybe three quarters of the way. But faith gets you all the way. A lot of us have lived our lives motivated out of fear. In fact, let me just, how, how many or who here today would say that you have faced some significant fears and challenges of fear in your life? All right, for those of you that haven't raised your hands, hold on a little bit. <laughs> because at some point, you will. There's the fear of, you know, um, of, of the fear of, they're not, of me not being able to secure maybe my future. Like, like will, I, will there be someone there to love me at the end of my life and care for me at the end of my life. And so there's maybe a fear. And so you make decisions based on, on that. Will that happen to me? You might be 
afraid or challenged of that. There might be the fear of a new opportunity that you've been given to, to, to go to school and to major in something that you've never majored in before, or maybe a new opportunity, a new promotion that comes along, and you're afraid, like, I've never done this before. I don't think I can do this. So it kind of paralyzes you, and you have this, like, should I, should I, or should I? I'm kind of, you know, pretty good right here if I move on. And so there can be fears that can paralyze us and things like that. We can be tormented by fears related to our children. Like, will they, will they have faith? Will they struggle with, you know, with, with, with certain vices, with certain addictions? We can have fears that can torment us with that. And then we can parent out of that fear. And so, you know, they say something, and all of these fears that have built up inside of us that what if they become an addict? What if this happens to them? What if their whole life falls apart? And all these fears are built up inside of us, and they say some little thing, and we just, you know, ah! We're like, oh, my God. Where did that come from? That's all these fears that are, just re- that are just at work inside of us, you know. Fear is a significant motivating factor for most of us. And yet the scriptures teach, the gospel teaches that there is a better way, a more beautiful way that we are called to. I think, when I think of that, I, there's one person that comes to mind that really resonates with me as someone that faced their fears, that did a lot and accomplished a lot out of fear, and that character is Elijah. Elijah, when we first read about Elijah, he has a ministry and a mission that is a fear-based ministry and mission. I mean, think, what kind of person walks in and just, in order to motivate people to get them to live right with God, he says, there's not going to be any rain for three years. You're going to starve. We're going to get you to live right. In, in fact, the scriptures say that he said, by my word. It wasn't even by God's word. It's like, by my word, it won't rain. Like, or what about this? We're going to call fire down from heaven on this sacrifice, and then we're going to lop off all the heads of all of you other people that are against our way. Like, he, he seems to be motivated out of fear, and he seems to seek to motivate people from that posture of fear. And what's really interesting with this is he's quite successful. Fire does fall from heaven. Israel does turn back to God. And they're like, yes, we're going to follow the Lord. But it's, it's, it's this fear-based kind of way of accomplishment, you know, manipulations. And that fear that is at work in him is something that the Lord wants to remove out of his life. Because he's coming to a point in his, in his ministry and season where it's about time for him to move on. And there needs to be someone that, you know, there's someone that's gonna, that, that he needs to raise up after him. And that he needs to disciple. And the Lord doesn't want him to disciple the one that is following him to be discipled in fear. Because you reproduce who you are, not just what you say. And he doesn't want to reproduce fear in the next generation. And so the Lord's like, I've got to deal with this. I have, to, I have to deal with this fear. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If you live by fear, you'll die by fear. And this is where our text picks up. In, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, just after the fire has fallen on the sacrifice, just after Israel has been proclaiming, our, you know, Yahweh is the Lord, Yahweh is the Lord, just after a rainstorm has come after three years of drought, and he is like a jolly good fellow, and people are throwing him up in the air, and they're singing his praises. Just after all of that happens, we are told, now Ahab told Jezebel everything. So 
I'm in 1 Kings 19. I think I'm reading from the NIV. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severe, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. This is one of those times where the Hebrew and the English idioms really kind of are the same. Like, you know, running for your life, running for dear life, running in fear for your dear life. This is what happens here to Elijah. He runs, he, he's, he's afraid, and he runs for his life. And the, the, the Hebrew word for, for fear is the same word for to see. In fact, some translations have it translated as, uh, as um, Elijah saw and ran for his life. Isn't it interesting the way that fear kind of works and, and preys on us? Like, like fear has a way of getting into our vis- vision, and it's the way that we see things. It's the way that we see the world. We see something a certain way, and it all of a sudden causes us to take flight or causes us to react or causes us to say something that we regret saying a couple of days later because this, this, we, the way that we're seeing things, the way that our eye is focused upon something. And, 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 and it is true that we, that we can look at something and, and, it, and, and the reality of it not, not truly be what it is, but the way that we see it, it's so much bigger. It's so much more profound. And so he runs, he runs for his life, and basically he takes like a 200, it's like a 200, over 200-mile 200 run. I mean, this is not with cars. This is 200 miles on foot. I mean, he is afraid. He runs over 200 miles, leaves his servant behind him, and um, uh, gets to a certain place, leaves his servant behind him, cries out to God. And, and, and we, if we pick up in verse, um, uh, goes, yeah, like in verse... Seven, the angel came, comes back to him a second time, touched him, says, get up, eat. The journey is too much for you. So he gets up, he eats, he drinks, he's drinking by the food. He travels 40 days and 40 nights until, until he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. Like this is the same mountain that, that Moses goes to. So he's furthest north as you can get in Israel, and he runs all the way down into the Sinai, like halfway to Egypt. You know, he's, he's running, for dear, running for dear life. And um, he, he prays at one point, I think this is in verse 4, he prays and he gets under this broom bush and he sits down under and he prays and he says, I, I just want to die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that fear does to us. Fear exhausts you. It'll take you on a run I mean, the very thing, he's like, he's running because he's afraid Jezebel's going to kill him. And then, and then fear just brings him to the point where it's like, I just want to die. <laughs> like, it doesn't even make sense. Well, just, if that's what you want, just stay there in front of Jezebel and have her, you know, take an archer and kill you. I mean, it would have saved you this long trek all the way down these 200 miles. Just go ahead and, you know, but fear has a way of just slowly taking us to a place to where we can't, we're so exhausted, we're so fatigued. Our spirit is completely sapped. We have no energy. We're not living out the life, the calling, the purpose, 
the mission that God has given us. We're not living into that place of divine uh, 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 divine destiny that he had. We're not living into that. We're not facing our challenges, facing our giants, overcoming what God has called us to overcome. We're just running for dear life. We have, we have taken the path of least resistance. We've come to the point to where our whole life is all about survival. It's all about what's the easiest thing for me. God, God does not call us. He does not want us. He does not lead us to the places that are the easiest places. Even, even when he talks about, you know, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Even when he's talking about rest, Many times, rest is like this picture of God bringing us, walking alongside of us, giving us rest, but leading us into places that are very challenging for us as we learn that really our weaknesses are the new strength, yeah? That, that he, likes to, he delights in taking our weakness and flexing his muscles through our weakness, flexing his strength through our weaknesses, right? And so God's will for Elijah is not that he runs, God's will is to deal with Elijah's fear, to get that fear out of him. And so fear can take on many shapes and forms. And we, it, can, it, can be, it can lay dormant in our heart and in our life, and then it can begin to wreak havoc on us when we find ourselves in testing or in conflict or in troublesome situations. This, this, this fear is at work. Some people have fear that for some reason they're damned to hell, that there's nothing they can ever do to get things right. And so they live under this constant fear that God hates them, that God's upset with them, that God wants to destroy their life, that God's trying to bring all kinds of things against them. And so they live under the cloud, the dark cloud of this. And they're constantly striving, working, trying to somehow prove to God that I'm, I'm deserving of just a little morsel, a little crumb that you could give me. And other people live under fear of men, fear of, of, of other people, other individuals. Some people fear, you know, political climates and what's going to happen in a certain political cycle. Or we fear the market. What's going to happen with the stock market? Will it crash? Will it? And so we find ourselves just living in, on pins and needles, just anxious and all this anxiety. And it, and it affects the way that we relate with the people that we love the most because we're bound up by, by this fear. And when I look at this, running for dear life, exhausting him, wanting nothing more than just to die, take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And this is where it brings you to, right? Where you're just so excited, you're just like, I I'm just going to close my eyes, pull the covers over my head, and just wish for another day. I have no strength. I'm so exhausted, you know. But you may find yourself that, that you've been, you know, as, as Jed was, you've made this eight-hour trek up this mountaintop, and then all of a sudden you're, you're like, oh, no, that's not exactly what I was wanting to face. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, you know, when you said go face your heights, I thought it was something different. I didn't realize it was going to be this. And so we, we, we wrestle, we struggle with that whole desire 
you know, to overcome. And we look at Elijah here, and we're told that <clears throat> the angel of the Lord comes to him. He says, this journey is too much for you. Um, and in, we're, we're told in verse 9 that, that Elijah uh, goes into a cave and he spends the night. Now, what you need to know about caves, you know, for those of you that, that are familiar with um, the hero's journey, the, the hero with a thousand faces, one of the things that you want, we, Joseph Campbell tells us about caves, and, and it's, in, it's an anthropological kind of view of, of all literature, is that there is that what's called the approach to the cave. That when, that when someone is in their journey, when someone is beginning to wrestle through the internal struggles that are inside of them, they come to this kind of one last approach, this one last place where they have to face their darkest fears, their greatest challenges, their greatest worries. And, and it's, it's, you know, when you finally come face to face and Half Dome's right there, you know, it's been a struggle to get to that point, but you, you come to that. For Elijah, it's he, he comes to the cave. And uh, uh, Abraham Heschel... Um, um, uh, says about this that this is, uh, and I think the mission even says it as well, that this is probably the same cave that um, Moses was in when he was held in the cleft of the rock and, and the hand of God was put over him. He says, you can't see me in real time. Moses, you can't see me in real time. The only thing that you can see of me is where I have been. You can see and hear me and understand me by looking to where I was. In other words, when you look to the past, you'll be able to see where I was and you can understand my character. This is the same, the same cave. So, so it's almost like what, 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 and oftentimes what we try to do when, we, when we're struggling with our, with our fears, we're facing our fears, it's oftentimes we try to go to somebody else's cave. We try to go to somebody else's mountain. We try to go to someone else's journey. We try to go to where someone, take someone else's pathway. You know, this, this past, this past uh, two summers ago, uh, in the summer, we hiked the John Muir Trail, and uh, one of the things that I learned was that even though I hiked that whole trail, they, they, they didn't name it after me when I finished it. <laughs> so no, no one said, Jeff Garner hiked it. It's now the Jeff Garner Trail. No, it's still John Muir Trail. Why? Because he pioneered it. He pioneered that pathway. He made that way when no one else had hiked, when no one else had walked that full length like it. He did that. And so, and everyone else wants to follow in his footsteps, so they, not everyone, but a lot of people want to follow his footsteps, and so they, they hike his trail. But when it comes to us, it's so easy to take someone else's pathway. It's easier to follow someone else's way, to, to, to you know, to run to Moses's wilderness and to just kind of, kind of hang my coat on his experience with God and hope that something happens there. And so fear will make us run to someone else's experiences, someone else's. And really what we're being called to in Christ is to walk, walk the way that Christ is calling us to walk, which is so radically different from everything else around us. And we have to face and confront our fears. And so he is led to the cave. He goes into the cave. And in this cave, um, he spends the night. And it says, and the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here Elijah. Now, the Lord will ask him this question two times. What are you doing here? The, the, the Hebrew, it, it's hard to even, you can't, it's hard to translate. This, this is, the translation here doesn't really do it justice, but it would be, it would be something like saying, who are you in this desert? Who 
what, what does this desert mean to who you are? Is another way of saying it. Like, you've left home, you've left family, you've left your country, you've, left, you've taken off running. Just who are you here? Now, when God asks us questions, it's not because he is curious and he's trying to, he's trying to understand us, right? He's not like, I'm trying to figure out just who, you know, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself, Elijah. I mean, you know, let's start with, I don't know, when you're 16 years old, tell me about that because I just want to catch up. And the Lord knows Elijah. He knows all about him, but Elijah doesn't know himself. And so God will pose a question to us that forces us to come face to face with God and understand ourselves. Here's what I know about our journey, our journey here is that we're born completely, totally, utterly selfish, and we're on a journey of transformation, transformation through the Spirit of God, through the presence of Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel, on a journey of transformation that will transform us into being completely, at the end of our life, hopefully selfless. We are on a journey of transformation, but we can't understand how to get to where selfless is if we don't understand who we are. Jacob, what is your name? The angel wrestling with Jacob says, what is your name? He says, Jacob, you need to understand who you are. You need to know that you are a deceiver, a supplanter. And once you understand that and you come face to face with that and you understand what's going on in your life, then I can turn around and I can bless you because you're facing your truth. You're facing the truth with your truth. And now all of a sudden, this brings sparks to life. So he says to Elijah, who are you in this desert? You know, it's, 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 it's what um, Viktor Frankl said when he, in, his, uh, in his work on logotherapy and man's search for meaning, when he says, you know, when we stood in Auschwitz and we were standing in, in, the, um, in the gas chambers and we had, the gold had been taken out of our mouth, our hair had been completely shaved, you know, there was nothing, my degree as a psychiatrist, psychologist, it had been taken, I, I have nothing to stand behind, all of my clothes have been stripped from me, I am standing there with nothing but my naked self in this shower. And he said, in that moment, I knew who I really was. I had hid behind my degree. I had hid behind the wealth of my family. I had hid behind all of the, but in that moment, I knew who I was, and I knew what I was going to do with my life. This is what happens when we come to the cross. This is what happens when we come face to face with God. It's that moment where we stand there and we realize in just this, with nothing to hide behind, his love for me is so great. His hand upon me is so wonderful. And there's not a rebuke going on here. He's just trying to awaken Elijah to, to where he's at. Where are you? Pose the question to yourself. Who am I in this place, in this season of my life? Just who am I? Who am I in the career that I'm seeking? Who am I as I, as I begin to plan out my, my, my family? Who am I as I, Who are you in this moment? Who are you right here? Who are you in God's presence? You want that fear to be dealt with? You want the shame to be dealt with? You want all of that? Who are you in him? Just who are you in this desert? This is Moses' desert. Who are you here? This gets better. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God. So then he goes on, he kind of gives his little excuse, you know, and um, the Lord says to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And he doesn't do this, right? So then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks, 
before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. I, I, I get the, the impression that all of Elijah's life, he was seeing the Lord in the fire. He was seeing the Lord in the earthquakes that were happening around him. He was seeing the Lord in the mighty winds. You know, all of his life, it was all about this, all of the, you know, what I can make happen out here. And now he's coming face to face. God's not in that. The Lord's not in that. And then it says, And after the fire came a gentle whisper. I love the way uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel translates this. He says it was the voice of silence. The voice of silence. He stands there and he experiences God in the voice of silence. And watch what he does. He gets up, he puts his cloak over his face. This is what Moses did when he went to the presence of God. He puts the cloak over his face, and he walks out to the mouth of the cave, and he stands there. And the Lord says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Whenever God begins to confront our hearts, it's because he has something far greater for us than what we're living into. We're just taking the path of least resistance. We're just running with the wind. And he's calling us into something far greater. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, before I wrap this up and, just, and, and talk a little bit about what I think the response is, the call and all of these responses is to him. Let me just say, what is the voice? What is the voice? The voice in the silence. What is that? And we were watching the news this morning, and uh, I think, um, I, was it on The View? Was that what it was on, The View, this week? Making, they were making fun of uh, Mike Pence or someone. They were making fun of because he says he talks to Jesus and Jesus talks to him. And everyone was making, kind of making fun. The, the view was making fun of him. Like, Jesus doesn't speak to people. Kind of, you know, mocking. Um, Jesus doesn't talk to people. And, um, you know, uh, uh, regardless of what one's political views are, I mean, put that all aside. God does talk to people. He loves people. He loves people. He loves all people. It breaks his heart when people don't want to connect with him. Well, I'm looking around here. I look around this place. You all are here because you love God, and he loves you. And he loved you, and he reached out to you, and you see the great work that he did, and you're here just listening to him and to, to what he wants to say or speak into your life. I mean, I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone that God still speaks today. Call me a wacko that hears voices. I don't care. I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. He still speaks today. And you cannot convince me. I keep hitting that. I'm sorry about that. I hope that's not causing like a, like a you know, like 
trauma for you. Or <laughs> every time I hear the, I hit that, it's like, oh, oh. Um, I, I, I mean, I have experienced his voice in my life, and no one could convince me otherwise of it. You can't. I look at the, I look at the transformation that's happened in my life, and it's, it's, all, it's connected to his voice at work in me. I mean, how many of you know this to be true? You're going through a difficulty, you're going through a situation, or your life was going a certain direction, and all of a sudden, God spoke to you, and everything changed. How many of you can point back to some moment in your life when you were walking a certain direction and God said something, you experienced something from God, and you're here today? You have hope in your life today. You have joy in your life today because somewhere in your journey, the voice makes a difference. When God speaks to us, it makes a difference. I mean, everything shifts and changes on that voice when he, when he talks with us, when we get really real with ourselves. There's something about that, man. I, I mean, I, I know it to be true. He whispers. He speaks. And all, all of the ugliness that was in our heart, in one moment, we, just, we find it just going away. All the brokenness, we find it healing. All of the, the hatred, the resentment, the unforgiveness, we find it just getting cleansed and healed. And all of a sudden, we're like, I love. I don't know why. I find myself just, I love more, you know. So... In Jesus Christ, the voice becomes flesh. Jesus is the voice of God in flesh. Jesus is the voice of God for us that goes to a cross and dies for us. Jesus is the voice of God that is resurrected for us. And when we pick up, a, when we pick up scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read what Jesus says, we are hearing the voice of God to us today. He is for us. He's not against us. Now watch this real quickly before we wrap here. In verse, um, after the gentle whisper happens, it says, um, and, and, and Elijah talks with, with the Lord. It says, then the Lord, in verse 15, said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. <laughs> it's like he's saying, you're in the wrong desert, buddy. Damascus Desert is north from where you were. You ran south. So it is my will for you to be in a desert right now. You're just in the wrong one. Go to Damascus Desert. I mean, this is true for all of us, right? We have found ourselves in deserts and in wildernesses that are of our own making. It's not where God's called us. It's not what he's placed. But he's loving. Isn't this beautiful? He's loving. It's not like God's not there, and he's like, oh, dang, God's not here in this desert. I need to go search. No, God's there. And he guides him to the desert he's supposed to get to. You, you know, you might be thinking, man, I, you know, I'm in this desert. I've, you know, I've made some bad decisions, done some wrong things, and it's a desert of your own making. And yet God is right there going, there's another, <laughs> go north, go north. <laughs> and then he says to him, how, how, how do I go back to the desert? How, how do I go to the Damascus Desert? And he says, the way you came. Now, just stop and think about this. If you know someone's pursuing you and chasing you, some of you, some of you probably aren't conspiracy theorists and you don't really think too much about this, but, you know, there are others of us that, you know, we're like, I think someone's following me. 
I shall not go back the way that I came, lest someone lie in waiting and jump out and pounce upon me and, you know, and they steal my, my virtual identity. And so we, so we take different ways back. So when the Lord says to him, go back the way you came, he is having to confront fear of, well, what if someone is lying in wait for me? What if someone, Jezebel's chasing me, all of her henchmen, they're after me. What if, I mean, they followed me in here. What? He's like, go back the way, face your fears. Don't take the path of least resistance. I'm trying to grow you, to transform you, to make you something far greater than what you've imagined. Now face it. So he's told to go back, and then he says, when you get there, anoint, hmm, Heziel, king over Aram, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. To anoint simply meant to give someone their divine purpose. I want your call was to help people find their divine purpose, their mission, their, their destiny. And your call was to help them with that. That's what you were called to do as a prophet. Get back to it. Get back to giving people their purpose in me. Now watch this. This is the first time this happens. I want you to go anoint the king of a different country. Like you are thinking right here. You're locked in this. I want you to think beyond you. I want you to think beyond your borders of Israel. I want you to think about a king of another country. What's he saying? I have a purpose for people outside of your sphere. I have a purpose for people that aren't a part of your country, your, 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 your hood, your world. I have a purpose for people that are beyond you. Get to it. And as long as you're living in fear, you'll never see the purpose that I have for people outside of your little circle of influence. You'll be just locked in here, fixated on what's immediate and what's around you. What's, but I'm asking you to go anoint what's beyond you. And then he says, go anoint the next king of Israel. Like, this is the elephant in the room. What happens if I go anoint the next king of Israel when Ahab and Jezebel are already the king and queen? He's like, face the elephant in the room. This is what I've called you to. And then what's behind you? Who is your successor? Who's following in your steps? What is, what's the Lord saying to him? As long as you're living in fear, you will never fulfill my purpose for your life. But the moment you step in faith and you can go anoint that, the one that is beyond you, the one that is before you, and the one that is behind you, then my purpose can be fulfilled in your life. We're sitting there on that hillside, and I look over at Jed, and I said, hey, do you, do you, what do you want me to have said to you? And he looks over at me and he says, well, I would want you to have said to me, you can do this, I'm with you. I was like, man, that'll preach. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so he got his little, he had his little belt, got his little belt on, and little, you know, the little carabiner. He pulled down, got up there that cable and he clicked in and he's, Grabs on, he starts going up, you know, one step after another. And I'm behind him, you know, I'm, I'm walking with him behind him. We make our way up, and there's a couple of kind of hair-raising moments as we're, as we're going up. A couple of those moments, I'm just like, oh, God, what, did I, what am I doing? I think I might be more afraid than he is. And I'm just like, oh, God. 
We get to the top, make it to the top. He pounds his chest, puts his hands out there, asks me to take some photos of him, flexes his little skinny arms, little 13-year-old toothpicks. He's like, you know. And then we sit down, we have lunch together. And then I said to him, that was awesome. That was awesome. You did great. What was it like when you were hiking, you know, when you were going up on the cables? What was that like for you? Were you afraid or, you know, once you got, he was like, every single step, I was so afraid. And I said, well, how did you do it? So this is June. He says, well, do you remember the sermon that you preached in Easter? And I was like, no. (laughs) I can barely remember them as I'm speaking them. He said, well, you said that Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead so that he overcame fear of death and that death was the greatest fear of all. And that if we can just keep trusting in him and his resurrection, it helps us overcome fear. I was like, I, I don't know that I had Half Dome in mind when I was thinking of this, but he's like, I would click in, I'd take a step and I would go, Resurrection Jesus. I'd click in and go, Resurrection Jesus. He said, I did Resurrection Jesus all the way up to the top of Half Dome. I was like, man, I got to try that sometime. That is awesome. Resurrection Jesus. Resurrection Jesus. Now, look, I don't know what, what, your, what your fears are that you're facing, but what I do know is that God wants to transform where you are so that you ultimately become what he has for you. Here's the thing. Last thing I'll say. Here's the thing. You don't accidentally wake up and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't accidentally wake up and you're like, oh, well, how'd that happen? I think I'm a Christian. (laughs) You don't accidentally just happen to be one. No more than a Marine just accidentally watches a documentary on, on, Marine, on the Marines and is like, I think I'm a Marine. <laughs> and shows up and is like, I'm ready to defend the country. Yeah. Or no more than some guy that slept at a Holiday Inn last night can show up and say, hey, I can like, you know, operate on your brain right now because I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. That's a really old commercial anyway. <laughs> no, no more than you don't just happen to stumble into these things Hear me, hear me. You become, and becoming something implies a wilderness. It implies a journey. It implies step after step after step. And one day you're like, oh my God, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I see him in me. I I have become one through the journey of my life by Walking in faith, living in love, standing in hope. I have somehow, over this journey, become one. There is no being without becoming. And you will become one in him. And wildernesses, where his voice, it's transforming us into that place where we finally become what he's calling us to become. Would you stand with me? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of one 
one fear. That might be too strong of a word. Maybe it's just a worry. That might be too strong of a word. Maybe it's just a concern that seems to inform a lot of the decisions that you make in your life. It guides, it kind of, you know, it, it's, it's at work inside of you. I want you to think of one, one fear that you have. And I want you to, I want you just to hear the voice of God whispering, speaking to you right now. I want you to listen to the voice of silence, so to speak, that's present with you. Not the earthquakes, the volcanoes, not the windstorms, just that awkward, eerie silence that broods over the chaos of our life. And here's what I hear him saying. I am pleased. I know your struggles. I know the weariness and the difficulty. I'm with you. And through me, we can do this. You're not alone. Through me, you can grow. You can become. Through me, you can discover the joy that I have set out before you. I have so much for you. I have so much good for you. I stand postured to give you so much more. You have been here worshiping my son, worshiping his work, worshiping his life, worshiping his, his commitment and his heart's desire to, to save and redeem and bring about salvation. You have stood here worshiping him, believing and trusting, pledging allegiance and loyalty to him. I am so pleased with you. I want to bless. I want to prosper. I want my shalom to rest over you. So, what are you in this wilderness? Who are you in this place? It's time to become. It's time to go to the Damascus. It's time to move beyond. I'm calling you to give purpose, divine purpose, to anoint those in your neighborhood, at your schools, at your places of work, to bring good news to them. Good news of my faithfulness, good news of my purpose for their life. Father, we stand in this space here right now just eager, eager to have your voice and your word saturate every part of us to be transformed by you. And we declare, we hear declared over and over, right? You are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? The Lord is the strength of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? 
When the wicked, even our enemies and our foes, came upon us to eat up our flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should camp against us, our heart will not fear. Though war should rise against us in this Will we be confident? One thing have we desired of the Lord, and that will we seek after, that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he will hide us. In the secret of his pavilion, will he hide us? And now shall our head be lifted up above our enemies round about us. You have dealt with our fears, and in your cross we are free. And we worship you for that here today. In Jesus' name, amen.